Good morning, everybody. My name is Glenn. I'm on staff here at Parkview, and it's a real honor to be up here this morning on this Palm Sunday. Beautiful, beautiful spring weather out there, right? Isn't it about 70, 75 and sunny right now? I heard, I, yeah, something like that. I heard we're supposed to get like an inch of snow, and I, I wanted to put my shovels away weeks ago. But anyway, um, this morning... We are in the middle of series. Uh, if you've been at Parkview for a while, you know that Pastor Ray finished a series on the Holy Spirit just last week, and we'll start a new one in a few weeks from now. So I uh, thought this would be a good time to just look at what the scriptures say about that very first Palm Sunday. So if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, if you're going to use the Bible in the chair rack in front of you, uh, it's on page 1078. Before we look at uh, the scripture, let's just pray together. Father, regardless of the weather outside, how cold it is or whatever, thankful that we have a place to gather that's warm, um, that's well lit, that's comfortable, and that's safe. God, we're grateful that we live in a nation where we can worship you freely. And so this morning, as we look at your word, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears, so that we won't leave here the same as when we came. And just ask that you would use me, Father. Speak through me, God, and accomplish your purposes, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. So John describes the triumphal entry, it's called, as theologians call it, um, this way. He says, starting in verse 12, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, don't be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now the feast, obviously, that, that John mentions here in verse 12 is the Passover feast. Jerusalem was a, was a, was a pretty crowded city um, in the day of Jesus. Uh, scholars think that there might have been about 50,000 people um, that resided there. But on this particular occasion, uh, on the Passover, they estimate that, it, that the numbers grew to about 120,000 people. Because Passover was one of the most important feasts of the Jewish uh, faith because it celebrated God's freeing them from the nation, uh, from, you know, slavery in Egypt. Every male Jew from the age of 12 and up was expected to attend the Passover at Jerusalem, which is why the crowds swelled like they did. Coupled with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was a seven-day festival. So there was a huge crowd of people there who met Jesus as he entered Jerusalem from Bethany, which was a small town about two miles outside the city. And this was an incredibly significant event for the Jews for several reasons. They had been waiting for the promised Messiah for, for years, for centuries. Suddenly, this great prophet arises on the scene. He teaches with an authority that they had never heard any rabbi ever teach with before. This man performed incredible miracles in front of them. And there was this buzz throughout their entire nation that perhaps this man was the long-awaited Messiah. 
And now this great prophet enters Jerusalem riding on a colt, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. The prophecy says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Most of the people in this vast crowd were hoping that this prophet who had the power to raise the dead, would bring victory to the nation of Israel by defeating the hated Roman and establishing his kingdom. So they laid their coats on the ground. They cut palm branches and they laid those on the ground before Jesus as he entered the city. It was kind of like the way they did back then when when they welcomed a conquering king who had gone out to battle and was victorious. And when he, the king, came back into the city, they would lay this stuff on the ground before the conquering king. Palm branches, as they were waved in scripture, um, was an expression of great joy and great triumph. The shouts of Hosanna were meant as both a cry for salvation, probably from the hated Romans, and also a form of praise to their coming king. And it was a direct quote from Psalm 118. But the fact that John adds that the crowd was saying, blessed is the king of Israel, implies that these people who made up this huge crowd were hoping to anoint a national liberator. They misunderstood Jesus' mission. They were hoping Jesus was coming to establish an earthly kingdom, that benefited the Jewish nation. They failed to realize that Jesus entering on a cult was symbolic of a humble king who was about establishing his eternal kingdom, which would ultimately bring peace to all nations and benefit everyone who would place their faith in him. Crowd wanted a conquering king, not a suffering servant, which is part of the reason why so many of them in just five days' time would yell, crucify crucify crowd that was there was huge and john identifies at least three different types of people that were in that crowd that day and what i would like us to do the remaining time that we have is just focus on these um the types of people that that made up this crowd the first of which was the curious John says in chapter uh, 12, verse 9, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Calling this group the curious because it seems like they just wanted to touch the magic. Jesus' popularity among the people was spreading in an amazing way because he performed one of his most powerful miracles recorded in scripture in the small town of Bethany, just two miles outside the city, only weeks prior to this very day. If you're familiar with the story, you know that Jesus was friends with this man, Lazarus, and this man was sick and died and was in the tomb for four days before Jesus arrived on the scene. Bible says that when he was there, um, when he got there, he told the mourners to remove the large stone that covered the entrance to the cave where Lazarus' body was laid. Bible says that Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Bible says that the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. So as you can imagine, word about Christ spread like wildfire through Jerusalem and beyond the region. So as he was making his way into the city that day, John says a large crowd of people wanted to get a look at not just Jesus, but this man Lazarus that they had heard. Jesus rose from the dead. They wanted to be close to somebody special. 
I am call myself a World War II geek. I love reading about World War II. And over the last several years, I, it's kind of morphed into a fascination with special forces, in, in particular the U.S. Navy SEALs. I've read so many books on the SEALs. When I was in high school, graduated high school, which is about the age that a lot of guys would, would enter military and be interested in special forces, I had no idea there was such a thing as the special forces. But let's say I did. Let's say when I graduated high school, I, I was as fascinated then as I am now about, um, you know, what it would be like to become a Navy SEAL. So let's say I went to a Navy recruiter and um, sat in front of him, and, and this man told me, you know, how, how I could um, get on a path to be, perhaps become a Navy SEAL. You know, you would just join the Navy, you'd go through basic training, you would uh, volunteer um, t- to take this um, exam, this physical exam, to see if you even qualify to see if you can qualify for the SEALs. And then if you did, you would enter the program and it would be an 18-month program with three phases and you would be pushed far beyond anything uh, most humans would ever even imagine possible, both physically and mentally. And then, and then if the recruiter looked at me and said, and, and by the way, if you were to um, become a Navy SEAL, um, your trajectory of your life, the, um, you know, the way your life was heading, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say, would totally change. Totally. You would be pushed mentally and physically beyond what you ever thought you were capable. You would do things you ever never thought you were capable of. You would see things you never thought you would see. And you would be expected to lay your life down for a cause greater than your own. Much greater than your own. Even being fascinated with the Navy SEALs, if I were to sit in front of a recruiter after high school and heard that, think honestly, I might say, mm, kind of like sleeping more than three to four hours a night. And I enjoy my comfortable bed inside. And um, I don't really like being cold. I know these guys are cold a lot, you know, because they, they're out in the elements all the time. And um, so you're, you're saying like I would be voluntarily going in harm's way where trained people with weapons are trying to kill me? I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. So maybe I'll just read about them, you know? And I'll just kind of live vicariously through books. It's a lot safer, a lot more comfortable. That's this group that John describes as were there that first Palm Sunday because they heard about Jesus and they wanted to just get a glimpse of this man, Lazarus. These guys wanted to be close to holiness. They didn't want to be changed by it. They didn't want to be challenged. They didn't want their life to take on a different course. Bible talks a lot about people like this. They were around Jesus quite often, actually. In Luke chapter 9, we read about some of them. Uh, Luke says that as they were walking along the road, um, a man said to Jesus, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, well, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. To still another, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Clear implication here is that in every instance, there were people who wanted to be close to Christ, but when he invited them to follow him and allow him to change their lives as a result, they began to look for excuses as to why following him really wasn't such a good idea. 
Matthew records another instance. A man came up to Jesus one time and said, Hey, teacher, um, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, Well, if you want to enter life, keep the commands. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know the commands. And the man said, Yeah, I, I've kept all these. Yeah, well, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, Go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And Matthew says when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had a lot of wealth. This is another man um, the Bible describes as curious. You know, I, I just want to get close. I want people to see me around Jesus. But when Jesus turns his attention to me and says, follow me, regardless of the cross, all of a sudden I'm like, mm, not, nah, I'll, just, I'll just hang around the edges then. To the curious, Jesus was really nothing more than a religious novelty. All these people were welcomed, even invited to follow Christ, but every one of them had different reasons to avoid total commitment. So that's the first group that John uh, identifies in this big crowd, the curious. There's a second group, and that's the religious group. This was made up mostly of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We know that they were in the crowd that day because in Luke, if you read Luke's account, they were there going, Jesus, you know, shush the crowd. When the crowd is saying, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're throwing stuff down in front of them like a conquering king. And these religious leaders are all upset about it. They're all tight. Telling people to be quiet. And in John, we read that they said, Oh, man, they're just lamenting the fact that the whole world is going after them. This wasn't their first encounter with Jesus. The religious leaders seemed to be around Christ all the time. To me, they were like little gnats that just wouldn't leave you alone. You know, like in the summertime, they're always buzzing around your face and flying in your eyes like kamikazes and stuff. These religious leaders, whenever I read about them in scripture, that's what they remind me of. It seems like no matter where Jesus was or what he was doing, whether he was like showing mercy to, to somebody that nobody else wanted to be around or whether he was uh, forgiving somebody's sins or whether he was healing somebody on the Sabbath, they were always there like accusing Jesus of, of like, you know, um, freeing somebody uh, from demonic oppression because he was demonic himself or they accused him of breaking the Sabbath because he would heal somebody on a Sunday. Or they questioned his authority to forgive sins. This group relied totally on their own righteousness to earn them right standing with God. They prayed long prayers in public. They would love to do that. They would go out on street corners where it was crowded and a lot of people would come. And then they would raise their, their chin and, and just start praying out loud these long, long prayers. They refused to associate with those that they felt were less religious than them because they thought that that would earn them right standing with God. They made a big deal whenever they gave money to the church. You know, they would take out their, their money and they would like, you know, flash it around, check this out, you know, and then they would put it in the offering, you know, like this. They always dressed the part. They had these, you know, long flowing robes that, you know, showed how religious they were. They loved the respect they received from the people. Jesus had a lot to say about this group, and most of it was really bad. In Matthew, Jesus says, woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. 
You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Which is why Jesus tells his followers, look, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because Right standing before God doesn't have anything to do with how good we are on the outside. The Bible clearly says that there is none righteous, not even one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we're trusting in our good deeds, our church attendance, or how much money we put in the plate when it goes by, or how often we volunteer, if we're trusting in that alone to get us right standing before God, we're lost. We're lost. Jesus' message was, none of us are good enough. And we have to trust his righteousness and allow him to apply his righteousness to our lives so that we can have right standing before God. Then good things come. There's nothing wrong with church attendance or putting money in the plate or volunteer, and that's great. But we can't put the cart before the horse. And that's what this group did. The religious people in this huge crowd on that first Palm Sunday were totally relying on their own goodness to earn right standing before God. So to them, Jesus was an offense. He was a challenge because his words cut right through their self-righteous facade. And then there was a third group that John, John identifies here in this crowd, and they were the changed This group in the crowd were those who saw Jesus' miracles and believed as a result. John says in, in, in chapter 11, verse 45, that many of the Jews who had seen what Jesus did when he rose Lazarus from the tomb put their faith in him. This group was excited about Jesus because of the miracles that they had recently witnessed. This group was on hand when Jesus raised their friend and neighbor, Lazarus, from the dead. A lot of the people in this group lived in or around Bethany, and it was a little town. So you knew everybody, if not by name, certainly by face. And when Lazarus, one of their own, one of their neighbors, died, they mourned with Lazarus' sisters. And they were either at the gravesite when Christ came or they heard about it through their neighbors when Jesus rose this man from the dead. And these people saw the power of God and they were changed by it. They put their faith in him. No one who witnesses one of Christ's miracles can walk away without making a decision as to whether or not he truly is the son of God. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, look, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. All the miracles that Jesus performed throughout his life were intentional, and they were meant to do something. They were meant not only to free the people that he would touch, whether it was from oppression or sickness or or death or sorrow but it was also meant 
to show people that he truly is God in the flesh. And you and I, when we see the power of God demonstrated, we can no longer just walk away and be unchanged by it. We have a decision to make. Whether we put our faith in this man as the son of God or we just say, I'm choosing not to believe. In a way, I'm here this morning because of the power of God. When I was in high school, um, I, I was in an auto shop class with this kid that um, was older than me. I was a sophomore at the time. He was a senior. And I knew all about this guy. Um, he had a really bad reputation. He was not a good guy. Um, but before that fall, when we were in auto shop, he um, became a follower of Christ. I didn't know that. All I saw was how this kid was changed from like the first day of class on. I could not deny the change in this kid. He not only looked differently, but he acted differently. And that was the weird thing. This kid with a really bad reputation all of a sudden spoke differently. And he acted differently. And I couldn't deny it. And God used that because that was powerful to me. That God changed this guy? That was a demonstration of God's power that I could not ignore. And so one day... In, in, our, in our auto shop class, um, I heard him speaking about Jesus with some of the other kids in my class. And all of a sudden, I got convicted of my sin. And God showed me my need for a savior. And so I went into the lunchroom, which was my next period class, and I put my head down on a table in Hillsborough High School. And I asked God to forgive me and to come into my life. And he did. And he's been faithful ever since. No one can witness a miracle. No one can witness the power of God and stand on the same ground of indecision about Christ as they were before the miracle happened. To the curious crowd, Christ was a religious novelty. To the religious crowd, Jesus was a threat to their own self-righteousness. To the changed crowd, Jesus was the power and righteousness of God. How about you? Who do you identify with most this morning? The curious crowd? If you're part of that crowd, let me just say, we're super glad you're here. We are. We love having you here. This is a great place to come and explore what it might look like to follow Christ. But if you're part of this crowd, our hope is that you'll lay down your excuses and you'll become a follower, a committed, sold-out follower of Christ. If you're part of the religious crowd, prayer for you is that you will allow Jesus to give you his righteousness and that you'll stop relying on your own good deeds because that's not going to win you right standing before God. It can't. If you're part of the changed crowd, praise God. That's awesome. But maybe you're newly changed and maybe you're floundering a little bit in your faith and you're wondering how you can grow. I would say take the next step. Get involved in a life group here. That's a great way to get connected with people who will help you grow. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been changed for years, but you're really not connected here. And maybe you need to be leading a life group to help people that are younger in the faith than you become more mature as they follow Christ. Regardless of the group that you most identify with, if you're ready to take the next step in your spiritual journey, I just invite you to shoot me an email this week and I would love to connect you with somebody that can help you take that next step. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there was a huge crowd 
that welcomed you on that first Palm Sunday. And I just ask that um, regardless of where we are, you will meet us this morning. That you'll challenge us to take the next step of faith that would bring us closer to you. God, draw us. Draw each one. I pray in your name. Amen.